Yeah, we are learning about the story of the Yaakov Avinu's passing, the passing of Yaakov. So here's the amazing thing. The Torah says, in this week's parsha of Ayichi, Torah talks about Yaakov, how he got sick and he got blind and he was dying and his, his son Yosef came and got blessings from him and then all of his children gathered around and he gave them all blessings. And then it says, he lay down... He breathed his last and he was gathered unto his people. And there is one key word, very important word, missing from this little anecdote. And that is the word Vayamat. And he died. This is the story of Yaakov's death. And it doesn't bother to tell us that he died. It just says, Vayigva, which is a kind of an expression of like, you know, he breathed his last. Vayayasef alamav, and he was gathered unto his people. Which is all very nice poetic expressions, but it, everyone else in the Torah, everyone else in the Torah, when they die, the Torah says, and he died. Yaakov, it doesn't say. So, it's a pretty simple, obvious question that's begging to be asked. Why does the Torah leave out the word Vayamat? He died. So Rashi, who is the simple explainer of the Torah, right? Rashi always says, I'm just coming to tell you the simple meaning of the verse. I am not a medrash. I am not mystical. I am simply telling you the simple meaning of the verse. So Rashi says, you want to know why it doesn't say that Yaakov died? Rashi says these words. Because Yaakov lo met. Because Yaakov did not die. That's a simple, that's a simple meaning of the Pasuk. Any other questions? And you're left with your head a-spinning. That, that's the simple answer? Yaakov didn't die? Yeah. Simple answer. This is Rashi. This is not Rambam or, or Zohar or, or any like layered mystical interpretation. This is Rashi saying that Yaakov didn't die. All right. All right. Yaakov didn't die. What in the world does that mean? In fact, the Torah doesn't stop the story of Yaakov's death there. The Torah continues and says, and everybody mourned him and they embalmed him and they buried him and they had a funeral. And the Torah tells us about the whole funeral and the Torah tells us about how they, they spoke eulogies about him. And So the Talmud says, Yaakov lo met, so, so what did they do? Funerals and, and um, eulogies and embalmed him. What, they did this all to a live person? So the Gemara says, no, 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 no. Ma zar'o b'chayim, afhu b'chayim. His children are still alive, so therefore he is still alive. Okay. Well, that's uh, sort of an answer that makes the question even stronger. A lot of people, uh, a lot of everyone who has children, uh, hopefully, their children outlive them. So, are all are all parents who whose children survive them still alive? As long as the children are alive, the parents are alive. And why does it say specifically by Yaakov? And why is this whole story in a parsha called Vayechi, which means and Yaakov lived? The parsha should be called, and Yaakov died. You know how many parshas talk about Yaakov? How many weekly portions cover Yaakov? You know, Adam, 
is mentioned, I think, in one parsha. Adam. Noach is mentioned, I think, in one, maybe two. Avraham is mentioned in Lech Lecha and Vayera, and maybe Chayesara. Three. Yitzchak is mentioned in Chayesara and Toldot. Two. Yaakov is mentioned in Vayetze, Vayishlach, Vayeshev, Miketz, Vayigash, Vayechi. Seven parshas, I think, or six weekly portions, Yaakov's life is covered. So from all of those weekly portions, you couldn't find one of them to call, and Yaakov lived, except the one that should have been called, and Yaakov died. So it's not just that the Torah is telling you that Yaakov didn't die. It's telling you that Yaakov lived after he died. Which means that not only does he outlive his own death, he begins to live after his death. So anyway, you can, you can give emotional explanations. Like people do, like, I keep him alive in my heart, or he's now an angel, whatever. But let's understand, from a Jewish perspective, what does this mean that if children are alive, then the parents are alive? What does it actually mean? And of course, what does it mean for people like us, whose father and mother is not necessarily Yaakov Avinu. I mean, Yaakov is the father of all of us. Jacob is the father, our ancestor of the Jewish people. But, but what about my father? My father, Baruch Hashem, is alive. But what about people whose fathers have passed away or mothers have passed away? What does this mean about them? Okay. Fair question. Let us begin. There is a Hebrew word that means truth. And the Hebrew word, although a lot of people think it's Yiddish, the Hebrew word is? Huh? Emet. Emet. Yes, Emet, that is correct. Emet, which, which in the Yiddish version or Ashkenazi version is Emes, Emes. The word Emet in Hebrew means true. What's interesting about this word Emet is that if you take the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it spells emet. Emet is spelled aleph, mem, taf. Aleph and taf is the beginning and the end, and mem is the middle of the alphabet. So the Hebrew word for truth is the first, last, and middle letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The Gemara says that when Hashem signs His name, when God signs his name, he signs it Emet. Emes. Hashem's signature is Emes. So you have two kinds of truth. You have temporary situational, situational truths, and then you have eternal truths. A temporary situational truth would be like when you have two people got into a car accident and only one of them is telling the cop the truth, and the other one is lying. That's a situational truth. Because it's only a truth about the particular set of circumstances, whatever happened here. But then you have eternal truths. Like for example, the truth that God created the world. Or on a simpler level, the truth that one plus one equals two. One plus one equals two is an eternal truth. The nature of truth is that it never changes. Time doesn't change it, and geography doesn't change it. So there are scientific truths, 
like the idea that what goes up must come down on earth. It's true. It's always been true. It'll always be true. And it's true everywhere. Everywhere on earth, whatever goes up is going to come back down. So there are truths that are the real definition of truth. And the real definition of truth is that it's unchanging. That's why the Hebrew word for truth is the beginning, the end, and the middle of the Hebrew alphabet, meaning that the truth is true at the beginning, at the end, and in the middle. And if something changes and suddenly is not the same, then, then we wouldn't call that the truth. So, for example, uh, about a hundred years ago, people would say, the truth is, if you want your kid to grow up straight and, and, and good, you have to spank them. And a hundred years ago, parental advice experts were saying, listen, this is the true fact about parenting, that if you, that if you spare the rod, you spoil the, the child, you have to spank the kid. Well, that was not an eternal truth, because there comes a time in history when children do not respond well to spanking, and spanking a child will actually have the opposite effect. Instead of raising a happy and healthy child, you'll raise a bitter and confused child. So that's just a simple example of something that was once true, but is not true anymore. Um, and, you can, and you can think of all the examples in the world of things that are true today, but will not necessarily be true in 100 years from now, or in 20 years from now, or in tomorrow. There, then there is real emes. Things that have always been true and will always be true and have never changed and will never change. Now, if that's the definition of truth, then there is really only one being, there is only one that is really true, and that is Hashem. Because everything besides Hashem at one point wasn't here, right? Even the oldest... Even the oldest, uh, what do you call those old trees? Uh, uh, yeah, even the oldest trees, huh? Sequoia trees. Even the oldest trees, uh, yeah, they were, they've been around for a long time. But even the mountains and the earth that's been around forever has not been around forever. It's only been around since the creation of the world. And so there are things, there is nothing that has always been and will always be and has never changed except God. So that's why we say nothing is true like God is true. I have to say that nothing, that God tells the truth and everything else lies. That's not, we're not making a moral judgment. It's just a fact of life that nothing is as unchanging as God. Now truth is synonymous with life. Because what could you say is truly alive? You could say a person is alive, an animal is alive, but compared to something that was always alive and will never die, people and animals and trees are not really alive. We live. We live. Our bodies live. 80 years, 100 years, 120 years. But compared to God, whose life is true because it, it, it has, stays the same all the time, our life cannot be called emes. Our life cannot be called true life. Because even, even the healthiest person 100 years ago, eventually at the age of 120, passes away. And, the, and their life comes to an end. So therefore, you cannot truly call a human being alive 
relative to God who is truly alive because he is truly true. So this is why the fountain of eternal life will never be found until Mashiach comes. Because that which is physical and not godly cannot be truly alive. Only God can be truly alive. This is why it's such a mystery that we say Yaakov didn't die because how could something that is not God not die? Everything has to die. Rabbi, maybe because uh, Am Israel Chai and Jacob's name was changed to Israel? Am Yisrael is the nation of Yaakov, absolutely. And what you're saying that Am Yisrael Chai means that the, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, lives forever. Yeah, and the father, they cannot live, uh, uh, they can live without a father, but he's the father. Yes, yes, what you're, saying is, what you're saying is definitely true. But what Rashi is saying and what the Torah is implying here is not just that, Israel, that Yaakov's nation will never die, that there will, there will always be Jews on the earth, which is, all, which is itself a miracle, which is itself a big miracle. Yeah. Am Yisrael Chai. But what the Torah is saying here is not Am Yisrael Chai, the Torah here is saying Yisrael Chai. Not the people of Israel are, will, will live forever. Israel himself will live forever. So the answer lies in a simple fact of Judaism. And that is basically like this. When God created us, he made us physical, mere mortal people, put us on a mortal coil, a physical, materialistic world, but gave us an an inborn, built-in connection to God that we have the choice to activate or deactivate. When something has a connection to God, and we're not talking about, we're not talking about uh, a connection meaning, uh, uh, you know, you study about God, you read about God. Connection meaning that there is a part of God in you and you feel that you are a part of God. When a person has that kind of dveikut, that kind of connection to God, then that part of the person, obviously because it's a part of God, that part of the person doesn't die. So here's the big question. Is, is there truly a part of us that is a part of God? Because if there is, then there is a part of us that cannot die. If you say we are inspired by God, created by God, protected by God, whatever, okay, all right, even something that's created by God can die. But if you say that there is actually a part of God in us, and that part of us is godly, then that part of us not only doesn't die, it cannot die. But isn't that more... Yeah, isn't that more... I'm sorry? Isn't that more our soul, not our physical body? Yes, it is the soul. And that's why it sounds and that's why it sounds like such a weak explanation because for us our soul is an abstract theoretical intangible thing whereas when we talk about us living forever when i say i want to live forever i i mean i and when i say i i am referring to my physical experience so 
That's why this whole concept of somebody living forever, to us, seems like a foreign concept. Because we don't identify the same way that Yaakov identified. Yaakov identified as merely an extension of godliness in the world. So if that's how he identified, then Yaakov himself doesn't die. Yes, his physical body died. There was a funeral, and there was an embalment, and there was um, eulogies, and they buried him in Marat HaMachpelah in Hebron, but that was, that was his body. For Yaakov, that's not him. For Yaakov, his life, his identity, is what he believed and his connection to God. That was his life. For you and me, that part of us lives forever. But what about us? What about us? So, in the Fabrengen, when the Rebbe talked about this, he said, an, uh, he said an astounding thing. Listen to what he said. Yaakov lived forever, and Yaakov lives forever because of the fact that Yaakov identifies as love of Hashem and fear of Hashem and service to Hashem and the truth of Hashem. So that, of course, doesn't die. But then if that's the truth, why don't you call one of the earlier parshas in the thick of Yaakov's life, call that Vayechi. Why does the Torah wait until Yaakov dies to teach us that Yaakov's life was true life, eternal life, I mean, if Yaakov's life was that eternal and that special, then why not talk about it earlier? Why wait until the last moment? What is the Torah trying to teach us? By waiting until he dies and then telling us, oh, by the way, Yaakov's life was eternal. If Yaakov's life was eternal to the point that his death doesn't mean anything, then that was true when he was 20 and 40 and 60 and 80. Why you got to wait till he's 147 years old to tell us that Yaakov lived chayim nitzchim, that Yaakov lived eternal life? You understand what I'm saying? If, his, if the quality of his life was such that it can't die, then why not tell it, tell, it, tell it to us much earlier so we could live with him knowing that we're experiencing a life that will not die? Maybe he was afraid he'd slip up. Exactly. So the, so the Rebbe said at this Fabrengen, you cannot know if a person's life is truly eternal until the person has made it through every test. Because if a person doesn't pass a certain test, if a person fails a certain challenge, okay, they're human, nobody will condemn them, they're good people, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but it's not consistent, it doesn't have the consistency of truth, because it's not like 2 plus 2 equals 4, almost all the time, except when I'm having a bad day, then 2 plus 2 equals 5, no, nobody will blame you for making a mistake and thinking that 2 plus 2 equals 5 once in a while, you can make a mistake, but you cannot claim consistency, so when a person lives their life, and you want to know whether that is, an, that is an eternal life. You have to know whether it is true life. And the only way to know if it's true is to see whether it's consistent because the essence of truth is consistency. So when a person is alive and living their day, going to sleep, waking up, you cannot declare them to have eternal life because you don't know what they're going to do. You don't know what's going to happen if they, if they encounter a new challenge. And of course, every day of life is a new challenge. Especially as a person gets older, you, you experience new challenges. 
So God waited until Yaakov made it through every stage of his life, overcame every challenge in his life, even the very, very final challenges. And then when Yaakov ends his physical life, God bangs the gavel and says, Yaakov Lomet, this is an eternal life, baby. The man lived a consistently holy, godly life. And therefore, there is nothing to die. And, but the way the Rebbe de- delineates Yaakov's challenges is beautiful. Yaakov lived basically two periods. His period, the, the, the period that he lived in Israel, and the last 17 years of his life when he lived in Egypt. The period that he lived in Israel was racked with aggravation. The period that he lived in Egypt was tranquil and peaceful, shalom v'shalve. It was absolutely blissful. The 17 last years of his life were the best years of his life, and ironically, they were in Egypt. In fact, the Hebrew word for good, which is tov, if you add up the numerical value of those letters, tet vav bet, you end up with 17. He lived 17 good years in Egypt. Blissful. He was with Yosef. He was with all of his children. He was with his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And even his great-great-grandchildren were born in his lifetime. And he lived the greatest time in Egypt. No problems, no tragedies, no disasters. Whereas in Israel... In the Holy Land, he lived terrible through horrible times. He suffered from Esau, he suffered from Lavan, he suffered from Dina, he suffered from Yosef. He suffered and suffered. So, when you talk about the suffering and the challenges of a person, there are basically two kinds of challenges. One challenge is the challenge of, of uh, suffering. And the other challenge, which is equally challenging, is the challenge of bliss. When you talk about a Jew being a Jew, there are two things that discourage Jews from doing the right thing, from living the Torah and the mitzvahs. The first thing that is a huge challenge to Jews keeping the mitzvahs is hard times. You know, a person says, yeah, I'm going to do the right thing, I'm going to do the right thing, until, until suddenly it costs something, or until it hurts, and then the person says, I can't do it anymore. I, I, you know, like people, some people say religion is, the, is a luxury for people with easy lives. Okay, person has a hard life, okay, suddenly, you know, he can't keep Shabbos anymore, it's too hard. So, hard times are a challenge to staying connected to Hashem. Rabbi, oh, no, no, I'm listening. That we all, that we all have a mission uh, over here in uh, uh, on Earth. God give us as babies, give us a soul, and uh, we are coming here for a mission. We finish the mission, and God takes back the, the soul to the heavens. Isn't it the same as uh, Jacob? Well, it depends how you did on your mission. <laughs> I mean, God decides when my mission is completed. 
Well, you, completing your mission is only part of the story. The question is, what else did you do while you were alive? Did you only complete your mission or did you take some detours along the way? Like, <laughs> Yaakov completed his mission without, without taking any detours. You know, it's like a guy making Aliyah to Israel with a stopover in Vegas for a few years. It's true. Me, Yaleb, HaRashem, completed my mission. Okay, so I took a stop over here. I took a stop over in Dubai. So what? So what? No, for sure, you're right. That the person dies when, they, when their mission is done. But the question is, how did you do on your mission? Besides completing it, you know, how, how did you do? So, is it everything directed by God? No, not, not, our, not our moral choices. Not, not when we decide whether to do the right thing or the wrong thing. That is not, that is not uh, directed by God. That's free choice. That's us making choices. That's, that's with the dreidel, you remember? That's where God spins the dreidel. I, we are God's dreidel. And whether you land on a gimel or land on a shin, you know, once you spin the dreidel, it's out of your hands, unless you're a cheater. And God is not a cheater. So, uh, you know, God says, I have a little dreidel. I made him out of clay. That's us. God made humans out of clay. And when he's dry and ready, dreidel I will play. So, you know, God spins us, creates us, and then God waits and waits to see, like a kid, you know, gimel, gimel, gimel. God waits to see that we're going to do the right thing and land on gimel and not, and not land on shin. You know what shin stands for? Schmendrick. So, uh, God hopes that we're going to land on gimel. We're going to be good boys and girls and not be schmendricks. So, no, that's up to us. So, there's two kinds of challenges. The challenges of hard times. And then there is the other challenge to Jewish life, which is the challenge of good times. Blissfulness. So in, during the hard times, the challenge is the pain and suffering. During the good times, the challenge is assimilation, the melting pot, good times, whatever. So Yaakov lived through both for many, many years. He lived in Israel and he lived through very hard times. And yet despite it all, his faith in God never wavered and he served God and he did the right thing and he lived with Hashem. And then he moved down to Egypt and in Egypt, where he suddenly has bliss and everything is great and no more pain and suffering, he f- continues to serve God. He doesn't waver. It doesn't change because his, his uh, service to God was not triggered by some external factor. He wasn't serving God in defiance of the hard times. He wasn't serving God as a means of, of surviving the hard times, an opiate of the masses. No, he was serving God because it's true. God is true. The Torah is true. The mitzvah is true. What God says is true. So if it's true, you're going to do it. Hard times, good times, what's the difference? And when he came to Egypt and it was suddenly blissful times, he didn't feel like, hey, you know what? What do I need God for? You know, hey God, if you find me a parking space, I promise a thousand dollars to tzedakah. Uh, actually, God, forget that. I found a parking space myself. Thank you very much. You know, blissful times. Good times. Everything's okay. What do you need God for? So, but Yaakov didn't fall for that either. So Yaakov survives both kinds of the greatest challenges to a Jew. And at the end of his life, 147 years later, God says the man was consistent and declares to us in the Torah that he lived a true a life of truth, which is therefore a real life. And not only did Yaakov himself live this kind of consistency, but Yaakov comes down to Egypt as we said on, on Shabbat, I don't know who was there, comes down to Egypt, full of trepidation, full of fear of what he's going to find in his child and his grandchildren. You know, his family comes to him and says, hey, great news, Od Yosef Chai, 
Yosef is still alive. Yaakov, the Torah says, He refused to believe it. Why do he refuse to believe it? He thinks his kids are pulling his leg. Why would his kids do that to him? So ra- rather, what did he refuse to believe? He had a feeling that Yosef was alive. But when he heard that Yosef is alive and that he's a big shot and a king in Egypt, he thought there's no way that Yosef is still a Jew. There's no way. He's for sure become an, an assimilated Egyptian pagan. And then he hears that Yosef got married. And Yosef has two children. Yaakov said, Oh, you out. Who did he marry? Who are his kids? Oh, yeah, yeah. So now Yaakov has to go down to Egypt. He hears Yosef tells him, come down to Egypt. Why? Why shouldn't Yosef come back home to Israel? No, no, no. Yosef says, come down to Egypt. So Yaakov is shaking with fear until he meets Yosef. And he sees the children. And when he, the Torah tells us, when Yaakov first saw Yosef and saw Yosef's children, he, he said to Yosef, Mi Eile, who are these kids? So Rashi says, who, who are these kids? What kind of grandfather says to his kids, who are these kids? Yaakov was saying to Yosef, are these Jewish kids? Are these your children? Are you living life like a Jew? So Yosef pulled out his ketubah. He pulled out his ketubah and he says to his father, I married Osnas and she's a Jewish girl and we're living a Jewish life and these are Jewish kids. And Yaakov gets to know his grandchildren, Menashe and Ephraim, and he finds out that Menashe and Ephraim are as faithful having grown up in Egypt in a pagan society, in an unholy society, in an immoral environment, they are as faithful and as, and, and, and as God-fearing as his grandchildren that grew up on his lap in Israel. He cannot believe it. Cannot believe it. And he says to Yosef, your children are extraordinary. Banecha, Menashev Ephraim, Lihem. Those two kids, those are my kids. What, what does Yaakov mean when he says those are my kids? He means those two children prove more than anything else my consistency in serving God. Because I have not only survived uh, difficult times and blissful times, I have survived my, my, my uh, children, grandchildren who didn't even live, didn't even grow up under my influence are living a life of holiness. That means that no matter where and no matter when and no matter how, the Torah remains true, God remains true, Yiddishkeit remains true. So Yaakov says to Yosef, the Jewish people forever, when they bless their sons, will say, may God make you like, what do we say? Yisimcha Elokim, Ke'Ephraim V'Chimenashe. May God should make you like Menashe and Ephraim, which is such an incredible statement. We don't, we can't even, we can't even imagine. Imagine, imagine. You have an entire uh, family of Jewish people grown up around their tzaddik, around their their grandfather, their father, holy father Yaakov, children and grandchildren, and 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 who does Yaakov wish all his descendants would be like? The two boys who grew up in Egypt. The two boys who grew up without him. Yaakov says, I hope all my kids, all my descendants will be like you. Will be like Ephraim and Menashe. The the compliment, the compliment to Menashe and Ephraim is unbelievable. But it's a compliment to Yaakov. So, Yaakov... Wasn't the... uh, 
his wife Potiphar's I don't know some some relationship da- to Potiphar's daughter yeah Potiphar's daughter so did Manasseh Manasseh and uh, Ephraim come from her yes she's but she's not Jewish. Who was Jewish back then? There was no, there was no real definition. Jewish meant that you joined the, the Jewish people and you believed in God, and you. I mean, before the Torah was given, there weren't, there wasn't a legal status. There wasn't a Jewish legal status. I mean, how was Sarah Jewish? How was uh, Rivka Jewish? Rivka's parents, right. Rivka's parents were Lavan, and Rachel. I mean, was Besuel, and Rachel and Leah's parent father was Lavan. These were not Jewish people. They were from Avram's family, but they weren't Jewish people. Because Jewish in those days didn't have the same like legal legal um, definition that it does now, legal parameter. Now it's a very what, black and white what thing. What is it about Jacob that makes him Jewish? Huh? Just that he believed in the one God. Who Yaakov? He, when you're saying when you're saying that that what is Jewish because the Torah isn't there yet and Mount Sinai hasn't happened yet. Right. 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 All these people before, their Jewishness is related to their just believing in the one God. Believing in one God and joining the family of Avraham. Avraham's family was the Jewish people. It was a family. So it start, what started off as a family, actually we still are a family. That hasn't changed. The Jewish people are still a genetic family. Um, but what started off as a small family became a very large nation in Egypt. But until then, it meant that you believed in, in God, you served God, and you were part of Avraham's family. So everyone, everyone that they married became, quote-unquote, Jewish, and including, including Osnat, who was uh, Potiphar's daughter and Yosef's wife. And including Moses's. Moses' wife, Zipporah, right, a Midianite. This was, some girls were Midianites, some girls were Canaanites, some girls were Egyptian, but it didn't matter, and the boys also. So why did he have to get rid of her? Who? I'm down. I know I'm out of the subject, Moses. Who? That had nothing to do with her Judaism. That had oh. nothing to do with her Judaism. It had to do with that with after Mount after the revelation at Mount Sinai, God told Moses that he should he should be a celibate. After the revelation at Mount Sinai, God told him that he should separate from his wife, and that started the whole gossip with Miriam and Aaron. We're also prophets. Why don't we? We don't have to separate. Why does Moses think that he has to separate? And they presumed that Moses made the decision on his own, and that was the whole scandal. But it had nothing to do with her Judaism. She was still very much part of the family. In fact, that whole gossip scandal started because Zipporah said to Miriam, "I feel bad for any prophet because they because they're going to separate from their wives." Zipporah assumed that all prophets separate from their wives. Um, so anyway, well, that, but that had nothing to do with her being Jewish. That's that. Right. Okay. okay. Anyway. Anyway. So now let's get back to now let's get back to our our re, our reality. Our reality. By the way, I want to show you something uh, something cool. Let me see if I, let me see if I can share it with you. The Torah, the Torah refers to Yaakov more than any of the other forefathers, not Avraham and not Yitzchak, but Yaakov is referred to as Emet, the man of truth. And why? Because all of his children remained, remained true to the faith. Whereas Avraham had Yishmael and Yitzchak had Esav, Avraham, I mean Yaakov, had the 12 tribes of Israel, and even Yosef, who lived in Egypt far away, remained faithful, and even his children remained faithful. So, let's see if I can do this. 
Can you guys see the screen over here the, with my scrolls? Yeah. You can see yeah, the, you, you see the yeah. red, okay. So above the line it says, <laughs> above the line it says, Emet liyakov, truth, truth to Jacob, which is a verse in the, in the Torah, and we recite it in the Uval Etzion prayer. Titein emet liyakov, you give truth to Yaakov. Now if you look closely, you can rearrange those same letters, and you come up with three different words under the line, Yaakov lo met. Yaakov did not die. The same eight letters that spell truth to Yaakov, spell Yaakov did not die. So, what was unique about Yaakov, that we say that he didn't die, is the truth, the consistency of his connection to God, and the consistency not only during his lifetime, but his children and his grandchildren. So this is why the Torah waits until the end of Yaakov's life to tell us about how he, how he lived forever. Because first you want to see what the person does up until the last moment of their life. And then furthermore, you want to see what the person's children look like. And what the person's grandchildren look like. Because if the person's children and grandchildren carry on in this, with, with this connection to God, even after the physical presence of the grandfather is not there, then you can truly appreciate the eternal, unchanging, consistent nature of the grandfather's connection to God. So, now we come to you and me. There is this, uh, this expression, you know, when people people's, uh, lose their loved ones, the doctor said, we tried, you know, we tried and tried to keep them alive, and then we couldn't. We, you know, our, our efforts at resuscitation and whatever, it failed. And so he died. When, when that happens, it now becomes the responsibility of the children and the grandchildren to keep their parents and grandparents alive in the spirit of Yaakov by picking up where the parents left off and being a steward to the legacy of Judaism that we were left by our parents and grandparents. And we have the ability, by taking what our parents left us and what our grandparents left us and living it in a vibrant way, we then actually are showing that that eternal part of our father or mother or grandfather or grandmother, that part of them which is eternal, was their most real identity. Even if they themselves didn't feel that way. But we carry their, we carry their legacy. So when, when I think about my grandparents or my, or my great-grandparents or when one of you thinks about your parents and you think about how they remain alive in the way you live your life. That, uh, you know, you, have, you run your kitchen the way they ran their kitchen, or you have the same kind of, uh, of a, a, kitch, a, klitch, a kitchen clock radio that your mother did. Or These are all klotchkes. But if you maintain the faith in God and the, and the loyalty and the, and the devotion to your Jewish religion, your Jewish identity that you received from your parents and grandparents. You couldn't receive it from anywhere else. You're, you're, the fact that you're Jewish, you got from your mother. 
There is no other way around it. So if that part of your mother burns inside of you, and you live it with a lot of, with a lot of energy, then that part of your mother is still alive. And it's not an exaggeration and a uh, form of speech to say that they're still alive. They are literally, the body is not alive anymore. But your body is alive. And in your body, first of all, scientifically, there is part of, parts of your parents are alive in your body because you come from your parents' bodies. But even more than scientifically, spiritually speaking, on the level of a person's life, which is not the body, a person's life is the person, the way they think, the way they feel, the way they talk, the way they behave, what they're passionate about, what they believe in, what they live for, what they would be willing to die for. That is the definition of a person. And if that part of you is Yiddishkeit, then your parents are still alive. Because that part of your parents doesn't die. The neshama, the soul, the godly part of, the, of your parents doesn't die. And even physically, it's alive in your physical body. So what the Torah is teaching us here is that the parents who have died, because Yaakov, it, Yaakov's body died. But the Torah says it don't matter. If Yaakov's spirit is alive in the body of his children, then Yaakov is alive in spirit and in body. His individual body is, is, is buried and is deceased, but, the, but his neshama is alive in you. After the previous Rebbe passed away, the Rebbe, one of our brains, he said, people refer to the previous Rebbe as the Rebbe neshmato eden, the Rebbe whose soul is in heaven. So the Rebbe said, personally, I, lo- I don't like to say his soul is in heaven, I like to say neshmato bi, his soul is in me. So a person says, where is my father? Where is my mother? Okay, they're in heaven. Where is heaven? Somewhere far away in a different zip code. The the neshama of your father or your mother is in you. The neshama of my grandparents, it's in me. If it wasn't in me, how could I, where would I have my life from? So the scientific reality is just a faint mirror image of the true reality, which is that our Yiddishkeit is as much of a, is as much of a, of a realistic life form as people's physical life. The connection that we have to God is as much a life form that we inherited from our parents as much as our vision and our ability to eat and drink and have a good time, which we also inherited from our parents because they created us. But our identity as a Jew comes from the most real part of our parents and grandparents. So if that part of me is alive, then the most real part of my parents is alive. And Yaakov Lomet. Of course, you have to say Kaddish, you have to observe a yard site, but that is only because of the absence of the body. But the real person, the real person is in Gan Eden. And what's Gan Eden? Gan Eden is your mitzvahs. Well, we, why, does a, why does a child say Kaddish for a parent? If a parent is in Gan Eden, what do they need a child to say Kaddish for? Everything is great. So if you want to tell the first 11 months, maybe the person is not in Gan Eden, and they need to be helped along the way to go to Gan Eden, so you say Kaddish to help them along their way. But every year on the yard site, you say Kaddish for them again. By now, they are surely in Gan Eden. What do they need you to say Kaddish for now? 
Because what is Gan Eden? Gan Eden is the mitzvahs that their children do. The mitzvahs that their grandchildren do. So even if you're coming from a generation of assimilation, even if you're coming from a generation, let's say your parents were not religious or faithful, but your grandparents were, or your great-grandparents were. Everybody at some point, their great-grandparents along the line were, were God-fearing people. Then when you do a mitzvah, that is their Gan Eden, and of course for your parents also. <coughs> so the, Rebbe's, the, point, the whole point of the Rebbe's Fabrengen was that we shouldn't scoff at this concept as to be, ah, oh, you know, it's just a spiritual explanation for a very materialistic uh, question. The Jewish people, more than they will ever know, are godliness. That's what we are. We may not always live like it, we may not always feel like it, we may not ever feel like it. But that's who we are. The Jewish people, we say, Am Yisrael Chai, is because we are... Uh, we are uh, a one long wave of godliness. The choice that is ours is which part of us would we like to identify with and which part of us would we like to nurture and live. If we choose to live our Yiddishkeit, if we choose to take the faith that our parents implanted in us when they gave birth to us and when they raised us and educated us, then that part of our parents which came from deep inside their hearts and which went deep Inside our hearts, that part of your mother or your father is alive and well inside of you. And if you are alive and well, then they are alive and well. Rabbi, do the Jewish religion believe that that goes so many generations back to our ancestors and so many generations forward? I've heard that. But I don't know what Judaism says like that. It goes all the way back. In fact... In fact, when a when a person does when we when we talk about let me gather my uh, sentence over here, the Torah says that God promised Abraham that your children will be as numerous as the stars and the sand. At no point in history were there an astounding number of Jews. Right? When the Jews left, when the Jews left, when the Jews were in Egypt at their height. There were about 15 million Jews, which of course is a very nice number compared to one or 70. But 15 million is 15 million. Today there are about 15 million Jews, so we really haven't come very far. But because the Jewish people are an eternal people, because of the fact that the Jewish people are, as Sassy said, chai, and why are we, why are we called a live people? Because each, and each individual Jew carries godliness into the world. And if they choose to live it, then that's exactly who they are. But in any case, because we are an eternal people, you don't just count the Jewish people of one generation, you count the Jews forever. Because Yaakov lo met. Yaakov doesn't die. And Yaakov's descendants, therefore, have this element of not dying. So you have 15 million Jews back then. But, but in the next 100 years, you had another 15 million Jews, and then another 15 million, and then another 20, and then 30, and then down to 10, and whatever, as the, as the wax and wanes of the Jewish history. But the point is that the Jewish people exist forever in their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. So yes, it is true that it goes all the way back to Yaakov and, and Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, who are alive in you and me, and it goes all the way down throughout our descendants, 
so long as we don't uh, cut the line of the Jewish neshama. So it's not, it's not an exaggeration to say that Yaakov didn't die, because if I'm alive, then Yaakov must have been alive. Otherwise, where did I get this from? And, it's, and if it's true about Yaakov, then it's surely true about my own parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents. So the Jewish people, as I wrote in the email, nobody hates death more than the Jewish people. The Jewish people have absolutely no love for death. We don't celebrate it. We don't like it. We will, we will give up 80, 99% of our religion to stay alive, right? That's what it says. You have to, you have to uh, violate every sin in the Torah in order to save your life, except three. So three out of 613, that means 610 out of 613, we would give up in order to stay alive. So much so do we love life here on earth. We don't want to die. We want to be here. And, but not only do we hate death, and not only do we dislike it and have no, have no love for it, we don't even believe in it. In other words, we do everything that we can to stay alive physically. And then if that ends and our bodies don't, don't remain alive, then the children do everything that they can to keep the parents alive physically in their life by doing physical mitzvahs. Which is, which is the basic, basic building blocks of Yiddishkeit. Physical actions. And that is the secret of Jewish eternity. So it actually is good news and bad news. The good news is that our loved ones remain with us forever. The bad news is it's our job to make it so. <laughs> you remember a few years ago on Yom Kippur? At the end of Yom Kippur, I said, soon Moshiach is coming and all the dead are going to come back alive. And then one lady in the back said, oh no, because her husband gave her a very hard time. It was pretty funny. But um, yeah, it's our job to keep them alive because if if our Yiddishkeit is alive, then they are alive. If our Yiddishkeit Yiddishkeit is, uh, is... slumbering, then they are slumbering. It's always there. The question is only how alive is it? So it's interesting, uh, Sassy, that we say, you know, everybody knows the song, David, Melech Yisrael, Chai, Chai, Vekayam. David, Melech Yisrael, Chai, means King David lives. What does Vekayam mean? Exist. Exist. What is the difference between living and existing? Living is the spirit, and existing is the body. Yeah. An existence, like my, this is my father's favorite subject. Don't just exist, make sure you live. The thing about the Jewish people is that we both live forever and exist forever. Living forever, all spirit lives forever. But if we keep our Yiddishkeit alive in our physical lives, then our ancestors live with us, inside of us, right next to us, along with us. Not only they live, they exist. Chai v'kayam. Alive and well, physically and spiritually. So therefore, the bottom line is, we got to be good Jews. We have to be gimels and not shins. And we should never be afraid. 
Not only because Hashem is always watching over us, but because our, our mothers and fathers and babas and zaydas are with us in every step of the way. Because their nishamas are alive in our nishamas, and their life is alive in our life. And uh, therefore, Hashem leave lo ira, not be afraid. This is particularly true, continuing from last week's discussion, for those of you whose parents went through unimaginably difficult times in their lives, and then came out with their Yiddishkeit intact, and passed it on to the children that were born after the Holocaust, and taught, you, taught their children to be Yidden, to live as Yidden, to be proud Jews, to be uh, energetic Jews and vibrant, it's particularly true for people who are children or grandchildren or whose children are grandchildren of Holocaust survivors because never, never in history, not even in Yaakov Avinu's lifetime, was there a test like the Holocaust. And the fact that the Jewish people as a whole and Jewish people individual, as individuals survived the Holocaust with their Yiddishkeit intact, the fact that they survived physically is God's miracle. The fact that they survived spiritually is their miracle. The fact that they survived with their belief in Hashem and their, and their love for Shabbos and their love for Yiddishkeit and so on and so forth to the point that they even passed it on to their children is even a greater achievement than Yaakov Avinu's achievement because the Holocaust was a greater tragedy than anything that happened in Yaakov's life. So if, if Yiddishkeit surviving Yaakov makes us an eternal people, then Yiddishkeit surviving the Holocaust makes us a truly eternal people. And your parents and your grandparents truly eternal individuals. And we should be very proud of that. And we should think about our children and grandchildren, how we could live our lives in a way that they will look at us and say, that is something that doesn't die. I would love to hear what you have to say about all of this, any of you, any of you or, or all of you. Hey, Rabbi, uh, what's going on? Yaakov lo met. Yaakov lo met. I talked about the fact that uh, God put us in this uh, world and to, uh, for a mission. And you said spiritually uh, he put us, but morally we decide our path. What about the Hasidic Jews that they are, I, I, I don't want to compare you, for example, or your your father, uh, uh, like Yaakov, because it's like uh, uh, you you are too humble for uh, to be compared to him. You or your father or your the other Hasidim don't live really spiritual life. So would it be right to say, X, Y, Z, Z, Rabbi, that was righteous and everything, lo met? Uh, a, person's, a person's spiritual excellence is not something that can be measured by comparing him or her to somebody else. Only by comparing him or her to their own abilities. So therefore, you can really never know who is a tzaddik because you don't know what their abilities are. A person who manages to do one mitzvah, which is, and, and, you, and you don't realize that that is far beyond their normal ability, is a tzaddik. A person who does a thousand mitzvahs but could do 
2,000 mitzvahs is a shmendrik. You understand what I'm saying? So, yes, it's true about anybody who puts in effort to keep their Yiddishkeit alive. And who is like that? Only, only you know that about yourself. Only I know that about myself. Nobody can know that about anybody else. So my father, my grand, my father-in-law, um, Tzalangi Yad my father, these are very, very holy-looking people. But only they know, and Hashem knows, whether this is all they can be. That's why the famous uh, Rebbe, Rebbe Zusha said, I am not afraid that when I die, I'm going to be judged by, by, by God telling me, why, you could have been like Moses, because I could not be like Moses, because I'm not Moses. But man, I am so afraid that when I come up there, they're going to say to me, why, why, weren't you like, why weren't you like yourself? Why weren't you like Zusha? You should have been like, you should have been everything that you could be. So, yes, I think in general, a person who makes every effort to do what Hashem wants and to stay away from things that Hashem doesn't want, in general, you could say, the more you try to live like that, the less your death um, is a reality. But every, everybody, in their own, everybody on their own level, based on their own background and upbringing and environment and uh, ability. Yeah. So does that mean if somebody doesn't have children, they experience in a sense a true death? They don't have children. You know. If they don't have children. If they don't have children, if they don't have children, then their then their ability to remain alive physically is a little bit harder. But they can do it by inspiring other people. If a person is responsible for the spiritual life of another person, then uh, then that is uh, them remaining alive physically. It's harder because how do you have such an intimate Im- impact on somebody that's not your child? But it can be done. It can surely be done. It's just not as easy because you don't have them in your bosom from the moment that they're born. But it can be done. And there's many stories about the Baal Shem Tov of exactly that. Parents who be- or couples who bemoan the fact they don't have kids. And the Baal Shem Tov said, inspire children or help those who are inspiring children and you'll have plenty of children. Okay. Give, give a kid a life and you'll, and you'll have children. It's just that our children are our responsibility. And when our parents pass away, we bec- they become our responsibility. So, anyway, anybody want to drink? Oh, you're not here, I forgot. Okay. I keep forgetting. All right, people. Any further comments? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Um, you use the term God fear. Yeah. What do you mean by that? God-fearing means that you are embarrassed to defy God in front of God. You, fe- you, fe- you fear disappointing Him or uh, losing your connection with Him. This, that is the more uh, grown-up version of being God-fearing. It, you just simply compare it to your parents. When a, when a child is two years old, or five years old, he should literally fear his parents. I better not run into the street or my mother will kill me. My, or my mother will be so angry at me. 
It has to be a literal fear in order to keep the child from doing stupid things. But then as the child grows, that fear has to mature. And instead of being afraid of your mother, you have to be afraid of disappointing your mother. And that's called fear of mother. But it's not the same when you're learning. As you continue to speak, when you said you don't want, at the end, for God to say, you, you, know, you messed up, you didn't, you didn't do as much as you could do. That, that helped me understand that. But, yeah. Um, I, I never thought about it being a fear, but I, I understand it better. Thank you. Uh, the, for sure, the greatest compliment you can give a Jew is to say that he or she is a God-fearing person. But it doesn't mean, yeah, I know, but it doesn't mean that they are afraid of God. It means that their sense, sensitivity to God, is as real as people's fears of whatever you know people are afraid of. That I mean, as a child, I heard, you know, God, we've heard it said, I can't say my parents said that, God will punish you. Yeah, that's, that's, that is beginner's level. A child should know that. If yeah, only every child in America knew. If only every child in America knew. If you shoplift, God will punish you. If only. Yeah. You know, if only. And that would be an amazing starting point. And then, of course, we could build on that and, and help people to mature and appreciate God a little bit more. But at least a little fear of God. Where is your fear of God? There is no fear of God at all. Not even that lowest, lowest level of fear of God. And, and there's no fear of anything. There's no fear of cops, no fear of law enforcement. There's no fear of consequences. There's no fear of parents, and there's no fear of God. There's no fear. You know, there's even t-shirts, people running around. No fear. <laughs> no fear. Anyway. That's right. Anyway. Healthy fears. There is a healthy sense of fear. Like a per you know, they say there are people who cannot feel burning. You know, people, you could put their, they could put their finger in a fire and they will not right. feel any pain. Right? So a silly child would say, that's amazing! No, it's not amazing because the person will destroy their hand. It's not like the fire doesn't do damage, it just doesn't hurt. But there's horrible damage being done. It just doesn't hurt. So a person who says, oh, I'm not afraid of God. That's not good. <laughs> It's, it just means that you don't feel any fear, but it doesn't mean that nothing's getting damaged. A person must feel a, a basic fear of a higher authority, and then a basic fear of disappointing that higher authority, and then the highest level of fear of losing your connection with that higher authority. So, it's a, you have to have a real consciousness of God, the way, be afraid, be afraid of disappointing God, the way people are afraid of disappointing their clients. That's a real fear. If I could fear God, if I could fear disappointing God, the way business people fear disappointing an important client, I would be an amazing person. Okay. All right.